Hey, up, Sassnacks! It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I am hosting my second edition of Droughtlander Book Club covering The Last McLenna by Katherine Lowry Logan. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my second edition of Droughtlander Book Club on The Last McLenna. Enjoy! McLenna. It's where we meet Elliot and Meredith, who, if you have read further in the series, these guys are very, very critical to the rest of the series. So tell all your friends, as you recommend the Celtic brooch books, do not skip the last McLenna because it is very important. It is book two for a reason. (laughs) I have had this discussion with people in my own sphere as I recommend this series. They're like, okay, so the Sapphire Brooch is second, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't skip the last McLenna. It's very important. Elliot and Meredith, man, like, how can you not, how can you not love them? Like, if they're not two of your favorite characters, you're just wrong. I don't say that very often, but you're just wrong if you don't like Elliot and Meredith. Normally, I let you have your your own opinions on things, but yeah, that's not an opinion. <laughs> okay, so the setting of The Last McLenna picks up a few months after Kit leaves from the Ruby Brooch. And just to kind of give you like a timestamp slash this is where we're at, Elliot has just turned 50 and Kevin is 28. So that will be important to remember as we move forward in the series. So that's where we're at as far as how old our characters are. Meredith is 42, if I remember that correctly. It's very interesting because the two, three settings really for this book are Fraser House, McLenna Farm, and Montgomery Winery. These are very much safe spaces for our main cast of characters, and it was more so safe space in their past. But when we meet them now in this book, they have kind of had all of their safe spaces kind of shattered around them. They've lost everybody that made those places homes for them. Meredith has lost her husband and her father, and Elliot has lost his father, the McLennas, Kit is now gone. Both of our main characters are feeling like they're adrift, I guess, if if you want to look at it that way. They don't have roots right now, and so they bury themselves in their work because that is the one thing that they can hold on to, whereas after they meet each other, I think they have this connection because they are so similar. And that's one thing that I noticed as I was reading this book is that the parallels between Elliot and Meredith are kind of crazy to think about. They are basically the same person. They're the male and female versions of each other in a lot of ways. And I love that Kate points that out. She makes sure to say, so tell me a little bit about him. Meredith proceeds to talk about how he has a temper and he's a control freak. And she's like, oh, so what else do you have in common? (laughs) 
And Kevin sees it too. So I love that Kate and Kevin, they're really good friends for Elliot and Meredith, I think. And while they serve as employees in a lot of respects, that's not their sole purpose in life. They're really the sounding board. And I think they know their respective person better than anyone else in the series up until the point that Elliot and Meredith meet each other. That's kind of key to think about is... They've lost their family, but they have kind of built this family around them. Elliot more so than Meredith, which is what I think kind of draws Meredith in a little bit because Elliot has built this community around him and Meredith really only has Kate at this point. She's struggling with Montgomery Winery as it is because she's trying to take over the helm, but it was an unexpected, it was an unexpected takeover. Her father died suddenly from a heart attack and she was just the VP of marketing. And then the poor woman is saddled with this entire winery and she doesn't want to fail her father, I think. So she's dealing with that just as Elliot is dealing with not wanting to disappoint Sean by taking over McLenna Farm. So you get this meshing of a perfect storm, I guess, in that they feel like they have other obligations, but when they meet, it's like lightning strikes. It's pretty cool. I was talking to some of my friends about it, and they said that they feel like Elliot and Meredith's relationship is the most earned relationship of the series. And I would concur with that because they go through a lot of crap. And this is something that they both go through a lot of crap before they meet each other. And then once they meet each other, they go through a lot more crap. They have fights and they have discussions about their fights and they make up and they have disagreements. And it feels much less like that insta-love quality that a lot of other Celtic Brooch love stories have. Don't get me wrong, I love that about this series, but I would agree that this 100%, like you can see these characters working at their relationship every second of the book. And so I appreciate that about this story. Speaking of setting, I um, have some Catherine details as I did last time. So my first one, I asked, what drew you to the winemaking industry as a partial setting for The Last McLenna and the series as a whole? Did any winery in particular inspire you? She says, I love wine. The idea started during the ruby brooch. I think I wanted to start a family business that could be carried from one generation to the next. Meredith's Winery is based on the Kendall Jackson Winery. So if you guys saw the questions that I posted, that picture of that winery is the Kendall Jackson Winery. So just so you guys know what that looks like, it's a beautiful winery. And I posted uh, extra in the thread as well, where I was, I kind of posted some of the most popular wineries in Napa to kind of give you guys an idea of Napa as a whole if you've never been there. I've never been there, so I tend to go down a rabbit hole when I read books with really rich setting to kind of immerse myself in it a little bit, and it totally made me want to go to Napa. So that might be one of my next trips. Who knows? Alrighty, so we're going to move into our character analysis, and first on the docket is Elliot Fraser. He is a character, and I struggled a lot with him when I first read, started reading The Last McLenna the very first time, because I felt like he was a very different version of Elliot than we have in The Ruby Brooch. And 
I was told the exact same thing by one of my friends. She messaged me and she was like, this is not the Elliot Fraser I know. And I was like, you just got to give him a second because keep reading. He's really struggling with a lot of crap. And it's not that he's not the Elliot that we know and love. It's just that he's buried in a lot of crap. (laughs) He's lost a lot of people that are really close to him right now. He's super stressed out with his job. He is suffering from these mountain of surgeries that he's had. He's in a lot of pain and he's really just trying to survive at this point. And I think that's really important to remember when you pick up The Last McLenna and you start reading it because he is, he's He does, it has a very different feel to the Elliot that we knew in the Ruby brooch. And I think part of that is because we get Kit's perspective of Elliot in the Ruby brooch. And he's always strong for Kit and he doesn't let his foibles show. Here, we're in Elliot's perspective for a lot of the time. And so we really start to dig into who he is and kind of sink into that emotional state. So I asked Catherine, I said, did Elliot always speak to you as a character or did his centrality to the series come later? And she said, Elliot's character started out as a Hispanic worker on the farm that had watched over Kit all of her life. His name was Emilio, I think. As I rewrote the first chapter, he grew into so much more. I created him from a composite of men in the Lexington, Kentucky racing scene I had met through the years. I love Elliot and I don't believe I'll ever write a scene that ends his life. So we can all make a sigh of relief on that one. (laughs) As the series progresses, (laughs) Elliot will never die. He's one of those characters that Diana would describe as a onion character or maybe a mushroom, maybe a mix of both. But he definitely grew for her as much as he grew for us as readers in that he wasn't what he was expected to be. He kind of became more and more and more. And even however many books in, he's still, his role just keeps expanding. So it's very interesting that he wasn't originally meant to have that kind of role. I mean, I guess I've had characters like that too, but that's really surprising that somebody that is so central to the plot didn't didn't start out being that way. So this is our first reader question, I guess. Which event in Elliot's past do you think has shaped him the most? So we're getting ready to get into the history section of his character. So I want to know what event in his past do you think has influenced him the most as of the last McLenna? Angela says good because the years are flying by in this series and I worry we'll lose him. I worried the exact same thing and then I read this comment from Catherine and I was like, oh, thank God. Because I just start sweating. The older they get, the more I'm like, oh, God, (laughs) it's coming. Janine says, just have read the first two books. How do the stones come about? So the initial legend or story that comes about, and I think it is explained at the end of the ruby brooch, is that there are three stones, the ruby, the emerald, and the sapphire. And when they're joined together something super special happens. So the sapphire brooch and the emerald brooch are books three and four. And initially that was going to be kind of the end, but it explodes into much more than that. But I'm not going to say how or why for those that haven't gotten that far. But yeah, the initial myth in the ruby brooch is that one of the lairds of one of the Highland clans 
his wife was kidnapped. And so the three McLenna brothers rescued her. And so as a reward, he gave each of them a magical Celtic brooch. So they're out there in the universe somewhere. And whenever they come back together, magic happens. So I think the first thing that's important to focus on for Elliot is his parents' divorce. It impacted him a lot. <laughs> a lot. It's not really even a divorce. It's a sh- a separation, I guess. But I think for a lot of reasons that impacted his emotional state as a young child. I mean, my parents divorced when I was in my 20s. I had just graduated college and it's impacted me a lot as a fully formed adult. So imagine being a 10-year-old child and having to deal with literally watching your mother leave your father, and thinking that somehow it's your fault. As an uninformed 10-year-old, you take that upon yourself and you kind of hold on to that, even though your rational mind as you age and mature says, no, that's not really what happened. You still have that emotion deep down. And so I like that we kind of see that impacting Elliot throughout the first portion of The Last McLenna, but we don't really understand that that's what we're watching until we get to the chapter where we see him kind of reliving that event in his life. And his mother says to him, be sure to clean and press your clothes. When I see you next, you'll look handsome. So this really kind of explains why he's so obsessed with his appearance. He wants to look good and clean and sharp and always because he feels like that kind of impression matters most to people and on a level his 10 year old self is saying well if I had looked that way my mother wouldn't have left what's really screwed up about the whole thing is that she left with Evelyn's father and I like that Meredith kind of picks up on this weird vibe when she mentions the parents at dinner one night while they're in Edinburgh everybody just kind of looks down at their plates or at some spot in the distance and they don't talk about it and that's what louise says we don't talk about the parents (laughs) because it is it's super awkward how do you bring it up that oh yeah my mom left with your dad they were they left both of our parents and uh then they were killed in a car accident and so not only do you have that tragic instance of your parent abandoning you But then to never get answers from that, to never have closure on it because they die. That leaves such a mark on Elliot as a person. And I think that's the first instance of loss that he felt that he just, he he didn't recover from ever. And we kind of see it pile on and pile on and pile on. Something else that impacted Elliot a lot from that time is that Elliot's 10 years old when he starts drinking, which I mean, in the UK, 18 is the legal drinking age. So I get that. But after his mom dies, his father finds him with a bottle of wine. And he he says, if you're going to drink away your pain, drink whiskey. Wine's no good for that. And Elliot says, then wine's no good for anything. So this is where we really start to see, A, how Elliot drinks and takes pain medication to escape from his problems. These are two coping mechanisms, very unhealthy coping mechanisms that he's developed. And B, it shows why subconsciously he has a bad impression of wine, the wine industry, wine in general. And he doesn't understand his father's obsession with wine 
because his father basically told him that wine's not good for anything. So why do you have a cellar of millions of dollars worth of wine if it's not good for anything? So it's interesting that this one event in Elliot's life kind of we see it shaping who he is across this book because he is a very different person by the end of this book. He's consciously made a choice to be better and improve himself for Meredith. But in the beginning stages and throughout half or two thirds of the book, he's a very emotionally damaged person and that impacts him on a lot of levels. A second thing from Elliot's history that I think really impacts him, and this is something that has impacted him in the story that we're watching, but will also impact him across the series. So I wanted to make sure to mention it, although I'm not going to include any spoilers. So control yourselves. No spoilers as I talk about this next section. When Elliot moved to the United States and went to vet school, he befriended the McLennis and He lived in Lexington. He was about 22 when this affair happened. Elliot loved this woman a lot. It wasn't just physical for him, but what happened was he thought that she was going to leave her husband and instead they reconciled, but he felt like he ruined her life in a lot of ways because her husband kind of always held on to that affair. And so even though that's not true, and Louise tells him as much, he holds on to that blame because he's one of those people that you can't keep them from blaming themselves for anything and everything that happens. He shoulders the blame. For you Outlander fans in here, because I know there are probably a lot, he reminds me a lot of Jamie in that way. Like, he just, he takes everything on himself, even if it's in no way his fault. It is his fault to him. And so, again, something that he just piles on. And so you can imagine, after 50 years of behaving this way, how heavy the burden must be for him. And I think that's a lot of his journey, is realizing that not everything's his fault. And also having someone to help carry the burden of the things that maybe are his responsibility. So I think that's a lot of what Elliot feels but also I think it's important to understand that he was only 22 when this happened and so he is just becoming friends with Sean and kind of being absorbed into the McClenna clan and he lost his mother super young so Sean's mother who we know as Granny Mac kind of took Elliot in. And this is important to note because it 100% makes sense. I didn't even see it before when I read it. And then I was reading this for the second or third or fourth time, however many times I've read this book. They were talking about how Elliot was by Granny Mac's side through all of it with her cancer. Granny Mac had lung cancer and Elliot was there day in and day out taking care of her as a son would because he really viewed her as his adoptive mother. When he lost her, that was another blow. It was like losing his second mother. So not only does Elliot feel like he owes the McClinic clan in general for giving him a sense of purpose and giving him a family after 12 years of kind of floating in the wind, now he screwed up with this married woman. And Sean gave him sanctuary and took him in and was like, look, man, 
Like, yeah, you kind of screwed up, but it's okay. And we're going to take you in and we're going to shelter you from all of this that's happening. We're going to give you a job and we're going to make you part of the family. And so Elliot feels like he owes them for everything that he has. And I think that is part of the reason that as we continue on through this book, he has such a tight grip on his role at McLenna Farm because he feels like if he let it go in any way, it would detract from that loyalty that he feels. He would feel like he's disappointing Sean and the McLennas in general and not holding up his end of the bargain in carrying on their legacy. Now, what he doesn't realize is that it's his legacy too. And he does get that eventually. By the end of this book, he realizes that he's a McLenna as well. So that was a that was a really cool journey, but it's very critical to understand that that all stems from kind of the situation with the affair that he had and also bleeds into his parents' loss as well, or his mother's loss. The third and final his- historical thing, um, it's not really history, but it's this character's history, is the attack that Kit and Elliot suffered. We get a lot more details on this in this book than we did in the Ruby Brooch. Which I think makes sense because we got the details from Kit's perspective in the Ruby Brooch and we understand what happened to her, but we don't necessarily know what happened to Elliot because by the time Kit came on the scene, Elliot was lying on the floor bleeding and then Wayne attacked her and attempted to rape her before Scott came in and saved her. So what the hell happened to Elliot, right? A lot. (laughs) We don't get that from Elliot's perspective. What we get of that story is actually from Louise because we find out that Elliot has kind of blocked out that entire instance and he doesn't think about it at all. It's kind of a a PTSD thing. He's really just kind of put up a wall and refuses to think about it. And we see that in how Louise does want to talk about it. And she brings it up a couple of times. And he was like, not today, Lou. Like, we're not talking about it. Stop bringing it up. I'm really done done with it. Stop. (laughs) And he's very patient with her, which for somebody with such a temper, really, it does surprise me how patient he is with Louise. She oversteps a lot. (laughs) A lot. She's a handful, for sure. What happened was Wayne cut Elliot's leg super, super bad, like did it on purpose so that if he survived, he would never be the same again. He did it on purpose to hurt him. So I can see why Elliot has a lot of resentment for that and also doesn't want to think about it because all he can do is think about being as normal as possible and he just harkens back to the good old days all the time. He doesn't want to think of himself as crippled or incapable in any way. And he's not, but he can't help but feel that way because he's such a prideful individual. We actually find out that he nearly lost his leg. And so that's one of the things that he really fears the most out of this situation is that with all of these surgeries, he's really afraid that one day he's just, they're not going to be able to do anything with it and they're going to have to cut it off. And I think he's super afraid that he's not going to have any control over that. He's very, very control freakish, which when you look at everything that has happened to him and all the things that have occurred that were outside his realm of control, how can you blame the guy for wanting to cling to the things that he can control? I get it. But I guess 
something else that we don't really understand about the attack is it's very easy to kind of gloss over it when you're reading the ruby brooch and you think, oh, he just got stabbed in the leg and it's fine. No, he flatlined twice on the table. Like he almost died. And the fact that he survived was a miracle. And the fact that he survived and got to keep his leg was one in a billion. Nobody thought that that was going to happen ever. It's good, but then at the same time, I think it also causes a lot of grief for him later and his inner circle friends because he struggles with that. Like, yes, he did get to keep his leg, but he's still not the version of himself that he was. One thing that he struggles with most is, and I don't think he even consciously struggles with it, but his friends can see that he could heal and he could be 100 or close to 100% again if he would allow himself that time. But he's not willing to heal because on some level, he's almost punishing himself for what happened. Again, taking on that responsibility of everything's my fault. And if I hadn't done X, Y, or Z, then Kit wouldn't have been raped. Wayne wouldn't have got away with a with fifty thousand dollars. Yada yada yada. He doesn't let himself heal because he wants to hold on to that pain because that's his reminder of how much he screwed up in his head. I guess. So it's very interesting to see how all of these things shape the character that we get at the beginning of this book. And like I said, this doesn't come across at all in the Ruby Brooch. None of this is shaded in at all. So we get a very skeletal view of who Elliot is. And then as we start to kind of pull back the layers of him, we understand why he is the way that he is in The Last McLenna. And it's not that it's not the Elliot of the Ruby brooch. It's that he hides all of that from Kit. So Elliot lost his mom when he was 10, but the loss of his father is something very new that he's dealing with. He actually lost his father between when the last McLenna picks up and when Kit left. Picture this. 10-year-old boy loses his mother. 22-year-old man falls in love, loses the woman he falls in love with. She goes back to her husband. Years and years pass. He loses his adoptive mother to cancer. Not great, Bob. Then he loses his adopted brother and his wife in a car accident. Then... Four or five months later, loses his goddaughter to the past. She goes back to be with her soulmate, which you can't really blame her there, but still stings. And then he loses his father. So Elliot literally has nothing left. He has his inner circle people. It's such an interesting thing because he has his inner circle and he's built this family around him that they care about him. They see how much of an amazing person he is and they see how much he's hurting and they want to be there for him and they are his family. But it's so weird because they have a very intimate relationship, him and all of these people. But at the same time, I think he wants to try to keep people at a distance and that's why he's temperamental. That's why he has such high standards. That's why he's such a control freak. Because if people, when people get close to him, they die is how it feels to him. So he's drowning in this grief. And this is something that we really see through Catherine's writing and something she's really good at. I remember reading this section. So I'll read it to you because it's something that really stood out to me. When he is just getting to Louise's B&B, and he's standing in the 
living room, receiving room, den, whatever you want to call it. And he's kind of bombarded with all of these memories. It says, in this room, he would always hear the echo of their voices, rising to a clamor over the merits of beautiful horses and fast women, bloodlines and lovers. Although as volatile as the other two, Elliot rarely joined the ruffle. He much preferred to toss kindling on their disagreements, which continued until they drained a bottle or two of whiskey and their cigars died in peace. This is him remembering his father and Sean having animated conversation over horses and women and how Elliot, this wonderful, outgoing, charming individual, he sees himself almost as a shadow of those two men. Like, I'm not as good as they were. He's just content to sit back and watch them at their thing. I think a lot of him questions how two great men were taken from the world and he's what's left. He has a very low opinion of himself because he feels like, especially after the accident, he is nothing compared to what he was. And before the accident, even, he didn't really view himself as up to par with Sean McLenna and his father. And we also see his sense of loss and how he point blank refuses to talk about Kit. We saw kind of the start of his grief when Kit was leaving in the ruby brooch and then a little bit at the end in the final chapter. I can't remember if the ruby brooch has an epilogue. It's either the epilogue or the last chapter of the ruby brooch when Elliot discovers her journal and he checks on the mansion every night to make sure nothing's changed and all of that. Like he still very much thinks about Kit and wonders if she's okay. But if you remember... When he finds the journal, he's not sure if he wants to read it because he doesn't want to discover that this journal was left for him when Kit was an old woman at the end of her life. He doesn't want to think of her as dead, even though, timeline speaking, she is. She's been dead for probably 100 years at this point. But he refuses to think of her that way because he loves her. And I think that's a parent's worst fear is losing their child. And he very much views her as his daughter. So it's painful for him to think about losing yet another person. Yes, he's lost Kit in theory, but she's not 100% gone for him. She's just somewhere else. So to think that he may reconnect with her through this journal, but that at the end of the day, it may be her writing her final words to him before she passes, that's really too much for him to bear. And so when we pick up with him At the beginning of The Last McLenna, he still hasn't read this journal. It's been like months later, six months or so. So it is kind of interesting that he still hasn't picked up that. I would want to know. Like, wouldn't you guys want to know what happened? Because Kit went through all the trouble of leaving this for him to have. So I don't know. I just feel like I would want to know personally. I get that it's painful, but I think curiosity would kill the cat eventually. Elia makes a comment as they're on their way to Scotland. He tells Kevin, if I ever find one, a woman, who loves Scotland, horses, and a wee half when she's thirsty, I'll rearrange a corner of my life and squeeze her in. And then he meets Meredith, like, two chapters later. She's everything, everything that he has ever wanted in a woman. And everybody sees that but him. And the same on Meredith's end. Elliot is everything that Meredith needs. He's just 
really screwed up right now. And it's not that he's a bad person. He's just dealing with a lot. And so that's the struggle because they're both dealing with a lot. It's not like we can say that Meredith's completely got her life together and she's just waiting for a man to come into her life that's good enough to share her life with. That's not it. Meredith has a lot going on too. So I think that's honestly what makes this a perfect storm for them because they come into each other's lives at a point where they're at their most vulnerable and they need that support. And they're able to provide that for each other in kind of a safe space as well. At first, because Elliot's reputation is not so hot, I think he had the affair with the married woman. And then after that went south, he just really decided he was done with serious relationships and went on a spree of women that has lasted like 27 years of just dating every single woman that he saw basically because he's afraid of commitment and I can't say that I blame him really between what happened to his parents which I'll be honest what happened between my parents kind of gave me a fear of commitment as well like because When you give somebody your whole heart like that, you are giving them the power to shatter you in a way that nobody else has. A, it makes you question whether you can handle that kind of heartbreak. And it also makes you question whether you trust someone enough with that. I think Elliot does question it. And then the minute that he let his guard down and gave his heart to somebody, it went south. And so he's just like, no, I'm not doing it again. So he is a serial dater, a sexy serial dater. He just views Meredith as another conquest in the beginning. Meredith has no interest in really being a conquest, I guess. Kate thinks that Meredith just needs to go out and have a good time. And maybe she does, but also Kate doesn't really know what Meredith is dealing with because Meredith doesn't like to share things with people, which is one of her things, but I will talk about that here in a second. Elliot views women as jigsaw puzzles. This is how he describes it. He says, to him, women were unfinished jigsaw puzzles without a picture to use as a guide. His only hope of figuring out the complicated creatures was to find the corner pieces first and then pray for inspiration. So you see, as he starts to get to know Meredith, he references back to this comment. He was like, oh, her OCD is one corner of the puzzle. Oh, her emotional damage from what she endured from her father and husband is another piece of the puzzle. And he's grabbing all of these little things and starting to put together this image of who Meredith is. But at first, he's not really doing it because he views her as a potential life mate. He's trying to figure out how to get in her pants. (laughs) And, And let's be honest, That's the truth, 100%. He has no interest in a serious relationship. She has no interest in a serious relationship. They have this sexual tension and Elliot is very much game for that, but Meredith's not sure if she wants the emotional baggage that goes along with a sexual relationship. And she hasn't been with anyone since her husband died. So that's a lot for her on top of everything else that she's dealing with. And so she's very resistant to that. And Elliot is like a dog with a bone. It's kind of one of my favorite qualities about him, and this is going to sound really weird, is that his insistence does not come across as pushy at all. You can tell he has a lot 
of experience with this. He knows how to woo a woman, how to make her feel special and sexy. And he's got that charm and that wit and that sexy Scottish accent. And he knows how to work it to his advantage. This is a man that has been in the dating game for 27 years and has been very successful at it. So Meredith had no choice. Like, he was going to get her eventually. And I think the surprise comes in when a relationship develops out of it, when they actually start to have feelings for each other and realize that it's much more than just a fling. Find a handsome Scotsman and that, 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 as Kate would say. (laughs) Tiffany Henshaw says, it's like when Brianna wanted to hold on to the letters from her parents if there were still unread letters her parents still lived. Elliot is like that about Kit's journal. Yeah, exactly. Great uh, great parallel. Claudine says, why commit when you might lose another person in your life? Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he's been through so much. Like, why would he put himself through anything else intentionally? Like, I don't think he could handle. And we see that. He couldn't handle losing Meredith. It is one of the most devastating parts of the book when Meredith almost dies, seeing him just literally crumple to the floor, like cannot handle it. To let yourself feel again, first off, and then to let yourself love somebody so intensely and deeply that you don't think you could function without them. Like you've picked yourself up off the floor so many times and you're thinking, okay, this is the time that I'm not going to have to pick myself up again. And then the worst happens and it's just awful. It's so awful. Brenda Castle says he loved Kit so much. He didn't want to sacrifice a true relationship with someone else that interfered with his and Kit's relationship. Yep. Janine says, we call it sexual confidence. Yes, he has a lot of sexual confidence. And I wonder if part of that is him overcompensating a little bit because he feels like that's one way he can prove it to himself and to the women that he's dating that he's still him and he still has control over his own physicality, even though his leg is still screwed up and he's dealing with that. But man... He can have sex and that's important. (laughs) Like, I I feel like that might be part of it, honestly. We talked about Elliot's aversion to wine and how he kind of has this disdain for it because of how that all developed with his father after his mother left. But you know what? As soon as he meets a woman that he can impress with this wine collection, bet your ass he's pulling it out of his back pocket and giving her a $10,000 bottle of wine just for the hell of it. And I think he is a gift giver at heart. Like that's one of his love languages. He likes to give things to people and he loves seeing the look on their face when they get something special. It was a miss with the pin that he gave her on Christmas Eve. That was a miss. And I think he dialed back and he was like, okay, recalibrating. What can I give her that is going to really knock her socks off? And he was like, hmm. I've got a $10,000 bottle of wine, that 1870 Lafitte that she was saying she'd someday like to try. I've got a bottle. Let's let's make some magic happen. So it's really cute to see that he is willing to do anything for her. So the wine collection takes on a completely new meaning for Elliot once Meredith comes into his life. It's a way that he can give her something of himself 
that's important to her and make more connections, I guess. Because after after this, the wine collection kind of becomes Meredith's baby. It's very interesting that Elliot's like, what is mine is yours. And wine's not really my thing, but I know it's your thing. So have at it. And he, he doesn't think for a second about selling it again after he meets Meredith, which I think is very interesting. Like he was all about, yeah, I could just make millions. I'll just get rid of it. I'm going to offload every single bottle my father has collected, collect the cash, and repair the house because it's in serious need of it. But once he meets Meredith and he starts to understand really how important wine is to her and that this is really something valuable that he has. It's not just that his father thought it was valuable. It really is valuable. Once he understands that, it's not something that he ever contemplates again. One thing that Elliot says to Meredith that really perplexed me when he said it, They're talking about their own personal stories and how he's pretty much an open book. Then he replies, well, one page isn't much of a tome. But as we have just spent the last half hour, 45 minutes discussing, Elliot is pretty much the last thing from a one page tome. (laughs) Okay, he is not a simple person at all. He has a lot of baggage a lot of dark history. So why do you think, this is an actual question, I'm curious, why do you think Elliot would lie to Meredith about this? Or at least omit the details, if not lying? Because I personally think that it's just because he doesn't think anybody would want to see his own scars. Like nobody would want him if they knew how bad his baggage was, I guess. And that you're supposed to put on a strong, confident face to the world and not let people see your weaknesses. So why would you let somebody see that side of you? That I think that's kind of where he's at. I thought it was his father's collection, Angela. But you're right. If his father tells him that wine's not important, that's how Elliot interprets it, that wine's not good for anything. But what his father actually tells him is that whiskey is better than wine at dulling your pain. And so with how much pain Elliot is experiencing in that moment, he says, well, wine's not good for anything then. I think the Meredith story is a bit more simple than Elliot's. But like I said, she's still got a lot going on. And we get that literally from the moment we open up with this book. Page two, we're getting, she's a breast cancer survivor. She's a childless widow. She runs a multi-million dollar winery. She's got a lot going on. And then she finds a lump in her breast and her whole world comes crumbling down. She feels like she's on the up and up, right? And she's just chugging along. She's making progress. She's got this new wine coming out. I know it's pronounced Callan in the audiobook, but I didn't think that was right looking at the spelling of that. This was my first time actually reading the book before I listened to the audiobook. So when I saw the spelling in the book, I was like, I don't think that's right. So I went to Google, my old friend, and they have this great feature that they will say whatever word it is, but they didn't have that for Scottish Gaelic. So I went to YouTube and they actually had the pronunciation of this word and it's pronounced Killian. So that's how I will say it. But Killian means child in Gaelic. So Meredith doesn't have any children. The winery is her life. Her father says, take care of the winery 
and everything else will fall into place. So that's what she buries herself in, especially after the loss of both her father, who died of a heart attack, and her husband, who died of a stroke, within a few years of each other. So she's had a lot of tragedy in her life, too. Lots going on for Meredith. Yet another person that has a lot of baggage and, like I said, has absolutely no interest in a serious relationship right now. This literally, in her book, comes at the worst possible time. She's off her A-game. But, you know, that's kind of how life is, right? Just when you least expect it, it catches you by surprise. So very apropos, I think. But another interesting thing that we learn about Meredith, and I picked up on it from the very beginning. I'm like, her last name's Montgomery. That's not a coincidence. And so literally... (laughs) It kept niggling at me. I was like, when are we going to get this confirmed? And so I think I just assumed. And then we don't really like get it confirmed until much later in the book. But uh, I was just like, I need to know. It kept bugging me. So I think I missed a lot of the initial impact of this story because I was so focused on that. And I wanted to know what happened with Kit and Cullen because I was so attached to them from the first book. So I think it distracted me a lot. But as I did my second and third read, it was fine. We really see those seeds planted without confirmation in the color of her eyes, which are blue with gold flecks, which is interesting because Cullen's eyes are blue. Kit's are green with gold flecks. And Meredith tells Elliot when he asks her about her eyes, she says, it's a family trait having these blue eyes with gold flecks and that it's kind of rare. And so I'm like, "Mm," a little bit of Kit and Colin in Meredith Montgomery. So I love that. And I love that Elliot and Meredith's son, James Cullen, is a mix of all four of these people that we love from the first two books. So he's bound to be a really special guy, right? If he's got Kit, Cullen, Elliot, and Meredith all in him. A couple other things we learn about Meredith is that she she knows horses, right? She, and she rides a retired racehorse, Quiet Dancer. Side note, freaking love all of these racehorse names. I would find that so hard to come up with racehorse names that I feel like Catherine does a really good job, which I guess if you've lived in Lexington for a good chunk of your life, it's probably second nature. You probably hear so many different horse, ra- horse names that it's probably just there. But yeah, I love them. Like, uh, what was it? When Elliot was talking about naming the draft horses that pull the sleigh and they're named Fred and Ginger. And he was like, oh, I would have named them Winter Jubilee. And I don't know. They had really good names. And I was like, oh, yeah, I would totally have named them, (laughs) named them that, too. That was great. Like I said, the loss of Meredith's husband and father has had a huge impact on who she is as a person. Elliot describes it pretty pretty well in that he says, guilt's like wearing an old pair of boots, too familiar to throw out, but too worn to do any good. And this is in reference to Meredith's guilt over how she handled her husband's health. Meredith, after having her own health concerns with her breast cancer and everything, and after losing her father, it's very important to her to take care of yourself. She blames herself a lot for not developing that kind of habit at an earlier stage and not seeing that she should have pushed the issue a little bit more with making sure that the men in her life that she lost took care of themselves. And she 
feels slightly responsible in that respect because she feels like if she would have kind of been like, look, you really need to eat better. You need to not drink as much. You need to not smoke. If she would have held on to that and kind of shoved it at him, that maybe they wouldn't have had these these events in their lives that ended up killing them. Meredith's father died of a heart attack. And I think that is a parallel in a lot of ways to Elliot losing his mother in that there was never any closure there. Her father had very high expectations of her. And I think we see that very prominently displayed in the way that she was raised when she was talking about how her senior trip basically didn't happen because she was late to a meeting and he wasn't going to sit around and wait for her. That might have been a little harsh, but I understand why he did it. Because if you only have one child and that child is going to go on to inherit this business that you've spent your life developing and that your family has had for generations, you want them to be responsible and you want them to be capable and tough. You need to teach them a lesson. She's 18. She needs to learn that she's on time and she has responsibilities and that there are consequences if she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain. And that's stuck with Meredith. That's something that she holds on to to this day. Now, do I think that it may have had a little bit too much of an impact on her? Yeah. Like, she really took that to heart. She makes checklist after checklist. She has everything written down on, like, three different calendars. It very much impacted the way that she does her day-to-day. But I think that it was a valuable lesson that needed to be learned, like I said. So I have mixed feelings about Meredith's relationship with her father because I do feel like at some points he had unrealistic expectations of his daughter. But at the same time, without him being that way, we wouldn't have the strong woman that we have in this series. And I don't think, honestly, that she would have been the match for Elliot that she is if she didn't have those foundational qualities. Her husband, on the other hand, I'm curious about this relationship that her and her husband had because everything that we get... It really sounds like it was not a happy life that they had together. She was kind of content to not have children. And so that's why I think it's appropriate that her new wine is called Killian because it is her legacy. She's not going to have that flesh and blood legacy that is expected of her, that her father wanted her to have. Her and her husband made the decision that they weren't going to have children After she was diagnosed with breast cancer and after she had the mastectomy, he treated her differently. He didn't make her feel beautiful. And I think he made her feel like more of a burden than anything else. Like he wouldn't even make love to her with the lights on. As a woman, I feel so terrible for Meredith. That kind of relationship is not something that you want to ever have to endure, I guess. And reading about that, like, I can 100% understand why Meredith has so much anxiety about having a sexual relationship with anyone. Because she saw how much her cancer impacted 
how her husband viewed her. So I really do wonder what kind of relationship they had prior to her cancer diagnosis, because it doesn't really sound like it was a very strong relationship, to be honest. I mean, I know that we couldn't really play up that relationship because we needed to emphasize the kind of connection that she and Elliot have. But honestly, man, that sounds so miserable. Like, if that's the kind of stuff that she was dealing with, with her husband day in and day out, just feeling absolutely miserable and not worth shit. No wonder she's emotionally damaged. You know, like Elliot, you think Elliot's emotionally damaged because of his affair with a married woman, but at least he never questioned his self-worth over it. Like, man, oh, that really makes me not like her ex-husband. It's really hard for me to understand that, I guess. Barb says, I have very rare colored eyes, but I've had people say more commonly found in whales, they're not really blue or green with gold. Not hazel either. Hmm. Barb says, what a cad. Yes, <laughs> he really is. I'm just like, mm, no, thank you. I have a question. So when Elliot and Meredith are kind of in their between state, they're not together yet. They're still in Edinburgh. And Elliot comes into Meredith's room and he sees her toying with her wedding ring and he leaves the room. What do you think is going through his head in that moment? Why do you think he chose to leave rather than push the issue? And while you guys are discussing that, I'm going to move on to the next topic. So I think the big thing for Meredith is her breast cancer diagnosis. So she beat it once. And obviously knew that there was a chance that it could come back because she didn't have a double mastectomy. But, you know, you hope and you pray that it's not going to come back and you do your breast exams religiously and you really take care of yourself. And as par with the tragedy of the Celtic Brooch series, yes, it comes back. And she discovers this lump before she goes to Scotland and before she meets Elliot. So she's dealing with all of this along with everything else that she's got going on, the launch of her new wine and all of the stress that's involved in that, her grief over her recent losses, and just a general amount of extreme stress. This is the kind of vulnerable state that she's in at that point. And so you can see how having a man really like approaching you in a very interested way, you can see the conflict there because it's novel thinking about having a relationship with a sexy Scotsman who finds you sexy. But then all the while, you have this doubt in the back of your head that's been programmed into you saying you're not beautiful because of the, your past relationship issues. And then on top of that, that you've got a lot of baggage. You have cancer again. Nobody's going to want to deal with that. That is being fed by the impressions that she's getting of Elliot from other people. Not necessarily the signals that he's sending to her, but that she's getting from other people, especially Louise. Louise is the biggest duck in the pond as far as giving Meredith misinformation. And I think part of it is unintentional. The majority of it is intentional. <laughs> um, Louise is not my favorite person by a long shot. But little comments like how Elliot is such a boob man, that strikes Meredith much more than it would impact 
a lot of women simply for the fact that that's exactly why her husband didn't find her attractive because of boob issues, if you want to call it that. Granted, it's not the same thing, but Meredith is lumping it all together and that's not healthy for anybody involved. And it's not true. Elliot really does find Meredith beautiful. Just because he prefers women that have big breasts, that doesn't mean that he doesn't find anything else attractive. It's the whole package that's going to make him settle down. It's not somebody that's got a good set of boobs. I mean, it's a moot point, but when you're in a vulnerable emotional state, it's the little things that become the big things, and I get that too. She chooses to not tell Elliot about any of this, even as their relationship progresses and they really start to have an interest in each other that goes beyond just a plain one and done thing. Once they really decide that they kind of want to try to have a relationship And we discussed it in our last book club, but honesty is the best policy in my book. And I really think that people need to be honest with each other and seeing characters in books intentionally being dishonest to protect the other person or because they don't think that someone would be interested if they knew the whole story, etc., etc. You can see it going south in a hurry. So it makes me cringe a little bit. But she intentionally doesn't tell Elliot any of this, that she found a lump, she's going to have a biopsy done, all of that jazz. She thinks that that's something that she's better off dealing with her on her own. She doesn't even tell Kate, who is probably the closest person that she has in her life at that point, her best friend and her assistant. She's really dealing with this all on her own, which I think adds, just adds to the stress that she's feeling, culminates in this, this series of breakdowns she has every single thing kind of compiles on top of another until she just can't anymore basically whenever she finds out that she actually does have cancer there's this great quote that really sums up everything for meredith she goes off on the doctor basically and she says which do you think was worse my first cancer or praying for a brain dead husband how about my father dying in my arms hoping he'd regain consciousness long enough to tell me for the first time that he loved me. Which one of those was worse, do you think? Maybe we should start with my mother dying in labor because she was too sick to give birth to me. Which one was worse? So, yeah, Meredith, poor, poor, poor Meredith. And then to find out that she's got a second bout of cancer is just, just so terrible. And honestly, it is one of the worst things about reading this book in particular is watching Meredith go through a cancer diagnosis and having to potentially come up with a treatment plan and all of this without feeling like she has any sort of support system. You know, when somebody was like, I really don't think you should be dealing with this on your own. She's like, I'm alone every day. What makes today any different? But you don't have to be alone. That's what I want to tell her. I'm like, you don't have to be alone. Look at how Elliot has built this circle around him. That is part of what draws Meredith in because she sees how Elliot has created this world around him. And she wants that. She observes that very much whenever they're sitting around at dinner. Sandy is there with her fiance and Doc is there with his wife and Chris Lyles is there with his wife and Kevin is there with his girlfriend and it's just this dinner of friends and they're all joking and having a good time and she very much observes that she wishes she could build that sort of 
connection and sense of community at Montgomery Winery, but that that kind of starts with letting go a little bit, which is not easy for her because like Elliot, so much crap has happened to her that's beyond her control. She wants to cling to the things that she can control. And she feels like Montgomery Winery is one thing that if she were to lose control of that, the rest of her life would not make sense anymore. And so she's reluctant to kind of give the reins to somebody else. But she also understands that with everything going on in her life, this is going to be a must. So her conversation with Gregory that she has, I think it's funny that whenever we first kind of start getting vibes on Gregory, we're like, oh, what an asshole. In reality, that's really just Meredith's perception of him because when she actually meets with him to discuss what he wants, it's all very reasonable. He wants autonomy. He wants to be able to do his job without having to ask Meredith's permission for every single thing that he does. I get that. I've had a job like that before where literally every time I wanted to change the level on my office chair, I had to ask somebody if it was okay. Like that's being dramatic. But literally every time I sent an email, my boss had to read it to make sure that it sounded okay before I hit send. That's the kind of control that I was dealing with. So I understand what Gregory is asking. He's not asking for a lot. It may sound like a lot, but he just wants her to trust him to be able to do his job without her hovering. And you know what? Once she lets go, her life gets so much better. She has so much less stress. And she you find her almost wondering why she was so afraid to let go. And she has this relief off of her shoulders for the first time. One thing that was interesting was that Gregory kind of pushed all of her buttons unintentionally. Like there's no way that he could have known that she had been diagnosed with cancer again and all of that. He hits her in all her soft spots. He mentions her health, her love life, and her lack of a succession plan, which all of that ends up coming to fruition basically within this story, but it's everything that she kind of has anxiety about. And he's just hitting her with punch after punch after punch and making her realize that, oh shit, no, I really can't keep doing this. Something has to give. And so I'm, she finally realizes that she has to build her own inner circle like Elliot has done. It's not on the same level because she's absorbed into Elliot's inner circle, but she's learning to kind of let go and give some of that control to other people, uh, including Kate and Gregory, which is which is really good growth, I think. Meredith's pregnancy is probably the biggest thing that impacts her as a character over the course of this story. And it's a really great story. Like, it's so tragic, but as a reader, like, I'm kind of addicted to that kind of tragedy. <laughs> As bad as that sounds. Actually, before I get into this, I will go back and read some of your comments again. Janine says, once bitten, twice shy. Absolutely. Like, that is the story of this series. Once bitten, twice shy. Um, Veronica says, I kept thinking how good she is at compartmentalizing to discover something this scary and still go on with one's plan is amazing to me. She's a beast. Let me tell you. Like, that is one thing about Meredith. She just keeps going, no matter what, just keeps pushing forward. There's actually a quote that she has, which I thought was very appropriate, where she says, this is 
after Elliot kind of implodes on New Year's Eve and she decides to leave. And she says, over the years, she had learned that you had to take life as it came at you or else hit it with a baseball bat. And that was exactly what she intended to do swing. So that really sums up kind of her approach on life. If you can't roll with it, then swing at it, basically. I guess that's a probably a good idea, like a good way of looking at things, but never, never crossed my mind to look at it that way before, I guess. Brenda Castle, Elliot reflects on a memory towards the end of the book of a conversation with his parents, his mom's his mom complaining that the wine collection was more important to his dad than she was. Yeah, the wine collection was a big tilting point, I think. Has a lot of negative association for Elliot. Meredith's pregnancy is kind of intense, but the discovery of her being pregnant is probably one of my favorite parts of the book. So my question to you is, what is your favorite part? of the book. For me, the conversation with her whole internal monologue about her being sick and everything just cracks me up every time I see it. You know, the one where it says, I probably have gonorrhea. What the hell is that anyway? Shooting's too good for him. I'll cut off his balls. (laughs) I love her so much. She's amazing. And her internal monologue is something that we need to understand her character. So I love that it's included, especially in this scene. Like She's so pissed off at Elliot that she immediately goes to the worst possible thing that could happen, in her opinion, that she's been given an STD from Elliot because he's such a man whore, in her opinion. So it was just funny. Her being pregnant complicates things because I think she was already struggling with her health and like what her course of treatment was going to be. And she knew that she was going to have to wait until after the the release of her new wine to do anything about it because it was it was just too important for her to drop and just focus on her health, in her opinion. And I think it's so funny because this is something that she gets on Elliot for doing, putting off his own health concerns for the sake of the farm and everything that they're dealing with there. And she does the exact same thing. And it's so maddening because they get frustrated at each other for doing exactly what the other person does. (laughs) I know that she's mad at Elliot for how he handled the New Year's Eve situation, but I cannot believe I was like, girlfriend, when she was not going to tell him that she was pregnant with his child. I was like, Oh my God, I know you're mad, but damn, he has a right to know. So I'm so glad that her doctor talked her out of it because could you imagine Elliot finding out like years and years and years later that he had a son and she never told him? And imagine if something happened to her with this cancer diagnosis and she died. Elliot would have been all that that baby had. And so I'm glad that her doctor was like, look, you're looking at this all wrong. Like this isn't about you. This is about this baby. And if something happens to you, he needs to know. This father of this child needs to know that he has a child that he's responsible for. I think it's interesting that up until this point, when Meredith does actually find out that she's pregnant, she never had an interest 
in being a mother before. Like, it never really crossed her mind that her and her previous husband had made the decision that they weren't going to have children. And then by accident, she becomes pregnant with James Cullen. And immediately it swaps over from, I'm not sure that I ever want kids to do everything you can to protect this child. Even if that means putting her own life on the line and delaying treatment for her cancer and letting it spread. It's kind of crazy how quick that change happened. And, you know, I don't have children. And so I don't really understand that maternal instinct as much as some of you probably do. But I just found that so fascinating that she literally went from, I'm never going to have children. That's not something I ever have to worry about to with the flip of a switch, just everything put on hold for this little baby. It's pretty cool. That's really summed up with this quote that says, She rubbed her hand over her belly, something she found herself doing often. There was no baby bump, of course, not yet, but she knew the little guy was there, depending on her to keep him healthy. She had to do all she could for him. She wouldn't be bullied into treatment because it was good for her. Whatever she did had to be good for both of them. Even when the the pregnancy developed into a potential health risk for the baby because they didn't realize that she was pregnant whenever they did all the tests for Meredith and they used radioactive dye and all of that. There's an extreme increase in birth defects for this child. So they were recommending termination of the pregnancy for that reason, but also because the options are extremely limited for Meredith's treatment if they're trying to protect the fetus. So obviously, from a medical standpoint, if you're trying to save the mother, it's not ideal to kind of try to maintain this pregnancy. But at the end of the day, it's her choice. And it's not until after she has this near-death experience that she understands that her life is important to her as well. It's not as much as she loves her child, she has a desire to live more than anything. And so she has to make a decision that is best for both of them. But one thing about the whole pregnancy thing, besides how it impacts Meredith, is how it impacts Elliot. Because Elliot's whole life really was kind of dedicated to Kit without her even knowing it, he really did view her as a daughter, very much so, to the point where he kind of gave up his opportunities to stay close to her, and it's why he never really showed an interest in marrying and settling down and having children of his own because he wanted to make sure that Kit was taken care of and that's how much he loved her. When Meredith questions Elliot's readiness to be a father and his desire to have a child, she asks him, what would you even do with a baby? And he says, the same thing I did with Kit for 25 years. She's part of the reason I never married or had children of my own. I couldn't bear the thought of leaving her. I fell in love with her from the get-go beautiful round face, green eyes. I was with her when she took her first step, picked her up when she fell off her pony, wiped her tears and her butt too. I think that's something that we just don't understand until we hear it from Elliot. We don't get how much he cared about her, like really and truly cared about her. So to see that that's how he feels like, you know, Meredith, like it doesn't fit your lifestyle to have a kid. It doesn't make sense for you. And he's like, who the hell do you think I am? Like you have this idea of who I am and it it's not true. I want you. I want our child. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. 
But like I said, and when you're seeing it from other people's perspectives instead of Elliot's, you don't really understand that. So I thought it was very key to, to get that from his his words, not what other people are putting into his mouth, I guess. And I love the quote that says, my son will never be the last of anything. He's the beginning of the rest of my life. I'm sorry if I didn't already love Elliot. <laughs> That's so sweet. You know, it comes on the heels of this whole story about how Meredith is the last Montgomery and Elliot is the last Fraser and how they're both kind of the last McLenna in an inadvertent way. And so we've got all of these lineages coming to an end with these people in this story and to kind of get that statement from Elliot that my son will not be the last of anything. He's the beginning of the rest of my life. It sums up this story so beautifully. I love it. But it's also interesting that Elliot has kind of taken on Kevin and David as his sons in a way too. As bad as it sounds, they almost have kind of like filled the void that Kit left. And I know that he had a relationship with Kevin and David before Kit left, but we don't really get them in the story as much. They don't become as central until Kit is no longer in the picture because it's this inner circle that Elliot has built up in the wake of losing the McLennas. He just, it's this offhand comment that he says, if he could just take off today and go, he would. He would take the lads and Meredith and Tate and Tabor and go to Fraser House and never look back. He really does view them as as very much his family and his sons. And I think we see that play out over the course of the rest of the series, but it really starts here with this theme of family that we get in The Last McLenna. Elliot and Meredith are very much a safe space for each other. I was talking about how their respective homes were viewed as their safe space before they met each other, but we really start to see this kind of develop in how they interact with each other in the quiet moments. This story has tons of drama, like lots of drama, because why would we read it if it didn't have drama in it? But at the same time, there are these little moments that tug at the heart and make us really understand the characters and the story. And some of my favorite moments are the sleigh ride that Elliot and Meredith pillow talk, those things where they really get to know each other, they share their concerns with each other, they tell each other their life stories, and really get to know each other. And you understand by the end of the book that they are leaning on each other. They have found the person that they want to share that burden with. Because in the beginning, they're very reluctant to let their weaknesses or what they perceive as their weaknesses show. They don't want burden anyone else with the baggage that they carry. And by the end of this book, they realize that that's something they have to do. Like they can't survive without it. I feel like you become so much lighter as a person when you have someone to share your deepest, darkest secrets and fears and concerns in life about. I feel like as a person, I have anxiety and unreasonable fears, and I think that that's a very human experience. But I also feel like when I see someone else in my life having a hard time, I almost put my own concerns on hold and become a stronger person for them. And I think we see that happening 
between Elliot and Meredith. And maybe that's me projecting my own life experience on them. But I definitely feel like they focus less on themselves and more on each other. And that's what makes them strong, that they have each other to lean on to hold each other up. So I really find that beautiful. The sleigh ride is so adorable for for many reasons. But there's a quote, Meredith says, they didn't talk much, mostly they laughed hanging in a make-believe world where derby-winning horses didn't die and young women didn't get breast cancer. They laughed because they could, because Meredith knew, and felt certain Elliot did too, that they were living on someone else's time. Their lives were too hectic, too full of responsibility to feel this free. For a moment, they're in their own little bubble, leaving all the problems at the door and just enjoying this time with each other. And I think that that's one thing that really we see Elliot and Meredith continue to do. Their time with each other is when they can almost have a sense of healing and not feel as run down by everything as they do when they're apart. But then you get the other side of it, these explosive arguments that these guys have. And I think the biggest example of that is what I deem the New Year's KB Laby. <laughs> it is such a clusterfuck, guys. And I get that Elliot is super stressed by everything that is happening with Galahad and the horses that are being murdered slash injured. And again, he's feeling like things are spiraling out of control. That coupled with prescription pain med abuse and alcohol dependency, it's just not good. And I can see that. Like, I know that that is 90% of the issue here between that and his temper, which he does learn to kind of keep a tighter rein on. I'm not going to say it goes away because it definitely does not. But he definitely learns to kind of control his anger a little bit. But it all starts with Meredith taking Stormy out for a ride. He hasn't had a ride in a long time. Elliot learning that Meredith's horse of choice is Quiet Dancer, who is a very high-spirited retired racehorse. He's like, oh, Stormy is a pussycat compared to Quiet Dancer. You'll be fine. And she takes him out for a ride successfully and then takes him out for another ride. He gets spooked at a cracked branch and attempts to jump over a stone wall and scrapes his leg and injures himself. Again, with the secrets. <laughs> it's fine. Don't tell Elliot. I'll tell him later, is what Doc says. Which, knowing how this story ends... Red flag, one million and one, y'all. <laughs> Why does Doc not want Elliot to know that Stormy has been injured and that Meredith was responsible? We know that Doc's goal was to hurt Elliot. He blamed Elliot for all of his problems in life. But I think that Doc realized Elliot views honesty as one of his highest priorities in women, in anyone. And so by... Him discovering inadvertently that Meredith had been dishonest with him, that would have destroyed his trust in Meredith and really kind of, he, Doc saw how important Meredith was to Elliot at that point in time. So he probably figured that this was going to be yet another way that he could kind of hurt Elliot. And I think that he honestly, because Doc's the one that suggested it. And so I honestly even have a little bit of a theory that Doc knew something may happen to Meredith while writing Stormy because 
If you'll remember, Doc mentions how Stormy has thrown Kit multiple times out by the cemetery. And somebody says, yeah, so don't go there. So this is all kind of being planted. And I wonder if that was sort of Doc's plan in a way is maybe hoping that something would happen to Meredith. And he settled for something happening to Stormy and Elliot being mad at Meredith. It's all very cloak and dagger, I guess. I do like the mystery element of this story for sure. Meredith's betrayal coupled with the death of another horse after Galahad really sends Elliot spiraling. Like he was already dealing with a lot, like a lot, a lot. (laughs) And then to have this added to the mix along with, like I said, his pain meds and his alcohol use and all of that really is just too much. And when he explodes at Meredith, blames her for what happened to Stormy, embarrasses her in front of the entire inner circle, like mortifies her, that's the final straw because Meredith has more self-respect than that. I think that's something that Elliot hasn't really had in a woman before. Like they always come back is what he keeps telling himself. They always come back. That's how he tries to comfort himself. But deep down, he realizes that mm, she's not coming back. Like, I really screwed up. And this screw up is something that creates this snowball effect with the inner circle. Every single one of them realizes how badly Elliot messed up. He stepped over the line. They'll tolerate a lot. They have tolerated a lot from him. But him treating Meredith like this, whom they've all come to love and respect, to see Elliot treat her basically like garbage was too much. And I'm really glad that they all had the integrity to kind of stand up to him and say, yo, that's not okay. Like, that was not okay at all. They love Meredith. In such a short time, she's become very important to them. And I think that they see that Elliot and Meredith are perfect for each other. But the fact that Elliot screwed up so bad, man, I was shocked honestly, when I read this. Like, I didn't think that he was capable of that. And I can see how he got there because, like we've been talking about for a while now, he's dealing with a lot. But I really never thought that he would would do that to Meredith. So I was surprised, for sure. I guess seeing how badly Elliot hurt her. I think once he sobered up and he realized that she wasn't coming back, like he really screwed the pooch on that one. He changed his ways. And I think that is probably one of the only reasons that she was okay with reconciling because he made an executive decision to change his actions, to change his habits. He stopped using alcohol. He stopped using pain medication. I applaud him because that's a a choice that he made without knowing or thinking that she may come back to him. He just decided, no, it's having too much influence over who I am as a person. It's cost me too much already and I'm not doing this anymore. And so I think that he did it hoping that word would probably get back to her. But at the same time, it's a choice that he made purely for himself as well um, on how he was going to live his life moving forward, which I thought was really cool. So when Meredith comes back and everything gets exposed as far as her pregnancy, her breast cancer, all of that, as if Elliot wasn't dealing with enough. It's like he describes he's batting 500 because he's lost a person and a person has survived from cancer. So Louise survived her breast cancer and Granny Mac succumbed to hers. So this was really a toss up on what was going to happen. And 
You can feel that iffiness, that, mm, should I stay or should I run in him? Like, can I handle another loss? Like, is this something that I'm prepared to embrace? But at the end of the day, he loves her and he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to be there for her. The conversation between Meredith and Elliot when they're laying in bed, it's a beautiful conversation that honestly makes me so jealous as a writer. Like, I wish I could write this kind of stuff and maybe someday I will. But um, whenever I read something like this, I just want to stand up and applaud because it's such a beautiful scene. When Meredith says, you'll hurt me again, won't you? And he said, God, I hope not. I couldn't live with myself if I did. And then she says, you're angry about something that goes much deeper than what's going on now. You know how everybody's been telling Elliot since the beginning of the book that he needs to go to therapy? (laughs) I feel like Meredith inadvertently is his therapist a little bit. She's helping to kind of uncover what's really, really, really bothering him. And in doing that, really starts to kind of pick apart everything because I feel like at this point it's almost like so much pressure like it's been pushed down and pushed down and pushed down each thing has been building on top of the other until it just springs open and everything comes out and I think that's what the whole New Year's Eve thing was it's just he couldn't push it down any farther and the minute he pushed that extra inch it just exploded she's right though and it's like we've been uncovering for this whole thing is that like they're both being bothered by things that happened a long time ago and it's learning to get past that learning to accept that as part of who they are and move forward but what I really loved about that scene is the end when she finally just breaks loose and starts crying and he just holds her like I said one of the most heartbreaking things about this for me was watching Meredith go through this cancer diagnosis all on her own She's being strong because she has to be because she thinks that she's the only person in the world that cares about her. And it turns out that Elliot cares very deeply for her and she just didn't really see that before. This is all from his point of view. And he says, in the midst of her guttural cries interspersed with gasps of breath came the words, it's not fair. She pounded on his chest. He grasped her hands, uncurled her fingers. Her nails had cut into her palms, leaving white oval-shaped indentations. He took the brunt of it, the anger, the frustration, the fear. Warm tears soaked his shirt. At one of the most vulnerable times in her life, he had hurt her, hurt her deeply, and he'd carry the guilt forever, hearing her pain-filled sobs. That makes him want to be a better person, and that is kind of what I love about this book. It is one of the deepest, richest character arcs is that all of this stuff happens and it makes them want to be better people for each other. It's not external forces impacting them and that's it. It's everything that's going on in between them and inside of them that, yes, gets juggled around by external forces and forces them to deal with it, but they want to be better people for each other by the end of this book. And that's what I love about this story. So that by the end of the book, it's 10 months later and they're married and they have a son and it's all just happily ever after for now. (laughs) I asked Catherine, I said, is there any aspect of this story that you feel is overlooked but extremely important to how we perceive these characters and their story? She says, it's funny, but I can only see them as they are now, not as they were then. They have grown into their roles very naturally. They're both a balance between brokenness and wholeness and needed each other to get to where they needed to be. They didn't have any idea of what their lives would become. 
And I feel like that only compounds as we move past this book into the rest of the series. But you can even see that at the beginning of this story. They had no idea where their life was going to be. All right. The inner circle. My question to you is, which is your favorite inner circle member? No spoilers. Janine says, oh, yes, Chelsea, it's much easier to deal with others' problems than your own. And then Veronica says, I don't think it's easier. Sometimes it's actually harder because you're so scared of losing the person you love, but you also have to be their support system even when you're terrified. (laughs) I feel like some books should come with the warning, don't try this at home. This is a work of fiction. Please do communicate honestly with people in your life. (laughs) Angela says, agree. I loved the character work of this book. Janine says, the (laughs) uh, for now scares me. Connie says, I agree. That is what I liked about it. Do you think this was in the right order? Should it have been first? No, I don't think that it should have been first. I think that the ruby brooch was first for a reason because I don't think Elliot would have been in as vulnerable a state and he wouldn't have been quite at rock bottom if he still had Kit when he met Meredith. And I don't think that he would have been quite ready to settle down because it was losing Kit that kind of made him realize how much he needed a family around him. Barb says, okay, now I'm hooked. We get more of them. Angela says Kevin is her favorite inner circle member at this time. Barb says, I like Kevin because he tells Elliot how it is. And Connie says, I say David. He's very mysterious. I wanted to know more about him. Yes. Okay. Kevin is my favorite inner circle member as well, guys. That doesn't change, I don't think, as the series progresses, but definitely in this book for sure. Like, I fell in love with Kevin in this book. The inner circle at this point in time, at the end of The Last McLenna, includes nine different members. So you get Meredith and Elliot, David, Kevin, Evelyn, Louise, Ted, Jim, and Chris. Some of the inner circle members, some, not all, I'm looking at you, Louise, tend to overstep. So I asked Catherine, I said, Elliot has a very close-knit and protective group of friends around him. Why do you think they're so protective of him? And do you think they ever overstep? She said, Elliot's friends do overstep. He was traumatized when his mother left and his friends wanted to protect him from being hurt again. I think they've seen so much crap happened to him that they don't want anything else to happen to him and they know how much he's already struggling that they don't want to add to the pile so as much as i don't like louise i get why she was mad at meredith for trying to be a temptress in her opinion because she thought meredith was married and she's seen elliot go down this road before and she wasn't having it again and she's like no elliot if you're not going to step up and say i'm not getting involved with a married woman again I sure as hell will. (laughs) So I think that is extremely important to remember when we're looking at Louise because it's easy to see her as Meredith does, as the villain of her love story, kind of. But Louise does have good intentions. She's a protective mama bear. Elliot doesn't really have that in his life right now. So she's trying to fill the void. She cares about him, but at the same time, definitely oversteps. Like Elliot is a big boy and he can take care of himself knowing how badly that affects with that married woman impacted him like how much of a negative impact that had do you really think that he would put himself through that again maybe there's stuff that you don't know louise that's all i'm gonna say like you need to trust elliot so 
That's all I'll say on that. But I love that Meredith, after she finds out what Louise did, she says, Louise will have to do a lot more than say, I'm sorry to make things right. When I read that for the second or third time, I was like, okay, but what does Louise do that makes up for it? Because by the end of the book, they're on relatively good terms again, but I could not remember for the life of me what transpired between them to make things okay. Then I got to the conversation that Louise had after she first comes to Kentucky. And she's talking to Meredith about Elliot, about all of his past traumas and her own personal experiences with breast cancer and how Elliot was there for her. So I think sharing that with Meredith and kind of building that trust between them, between survivors, then also offering to stand in the gap. This is this is an idea that we kind of come to time and time again with the inner circle is that they see how good that Meredith is for Elliot. And they're like, you know, we've never done this before. We've never stood up to him and said, no, that's not right. No, we're not going to do that. No, you need to be a better person. They've never done that before, but they're willing to do this for Meredith. And this all starts with this conversation that Meredith and Louise have. Louise says something very touching and something only a friend can say and get away with it. She says, I've never known a man with such a giving heart. He's tender and loving and affectionate, but he does not believe he's worthy of the kind of love he craves. I think he might accept it from you. It really goes to show how highly Louise values Meredith and sees the kind of impact that she has on Elliot. And despite initial impressions, there might actually be something there. Jim Manning. I like Jim, but we don't really get much about him. He's Elliot's lawyer and good friend. He was a basketball player at the University of Kentucky. He is one of Elliot's biggest advocates for going to therapy. He realizes how much shit Elliot has been through and he realizes that he needs help. But he's also very good at urging Elliot to do things that he might not necessarily want to do and saying, you know what? Get off your high horse. You might actually learn something. And I think this is really presented to us in the conversation when Jim is telling Elliot he needs to read the article about Meredith and Wine Digest. And he was like, I'm not reading a wine magazine, blah, blah, blah. He said, you might learn something about this woman you profess to be so interested in. Like... Really, bro? Like, you supposedly are really obsessed with this woman, but you don't want to know anything about her? Well, when you consider the fact that knowing things about people makes you care about them, and if you care about people, then you can get hurt when they leave. That is exactly the train of thought that is going through this conversation because then Jim, who is absolutely a no bullshitter and calls Elliot out when he's being an ass, says, this isn't about Meredith having cancer. This is about you taking a risk and loving someone who might leave you. And then Elliot says, everyone does. Why not her? So that is 100%. We see it right there. What's going on with him? Chris Lyles is Elliot's surgeon and also a close friend. I think this book does a really good job of showing medical professionals. We get Kevin's girlfriend, who's a resident that's trained to be an oncologist. 
And we get Chris Lyles, who is a surgeon. So we really start to understand kind of what medical professionals go through on a daily basis and get a broader appreciation for them, I think, in dealing with difficult patients and dealing with the loss of those patients and the fact that they have lives outside of being your doctor or your nurse or your paramedic or whatever. And they're dealing with stuff too. And just because you're going through stuff doesn't give you the right to use them as a punching bag, basically. So um, I did like that element of this story. It's just like kind of slid in there a little bit. One thing that I really liked about Chris is the scene between Chris and Meredith. And I like that it's not all the time that we get interactions between Elliot and these inner circle members. We get interactions between these inner circle members and Meredith. And that's how we understand exactly what makes these people so important to Elliot. Like, why does he keep them around? I think it's really that they don't take his bullshit. He can be nasty. We see that in this book. Like, he has a temper. He has very high expectations. But you know what? They're not afraid to call him out and be like, stop it. They don't do it all the time. But when they do, he listens. That's what I like about Chris is that we see him and Elliot have these altercations, whether it's funny, kind of like the instance with the catheter or when Chris comes to give Elliot the news that Meredith is going to be okay. At the end of the book, we have these slight interactions, but it's the interactions that they have with Meredith, like this conversation when Chris says, the fact that you're here tells me you're special to him. Whenever Elliot gets the blood clot in his arterial graph and has to have emergency surgery, Elliot's never given permission for anyone to speak to anyone else, any of his women friends, about his medical status before. This is a parallel that we see between Elliot and Meredith, that this is really the first time that they have felt comfortable enough with a partner to allow their doctors to speak to their significant others about their medical conditions. That shows a level of trust, I think, that really continues to build throughout the series, but that's that initial baseline. It's like, okay, I'm extending this to you. Please don't abuse this power, but here you go. This is all you need to know about my medical history, etc. And that's a big step. Medical history is very confidential. So to be able to share that is, it's intense. And it's, it does show a, a big level of trust. Whenever we meet Chris, and he's discussing things with Meredith, we get a very vivid picture of a lot of the other members of the inner circle. He describes Louise as an overprotective mama bear. He describes Evelyn as a mediator between Louise and Elliot. David is the enforcer, making Elliot stick to his commitments about his health and is also a protector. Kevin is a paramedic, a hunter, and an equestrian, and he'd take a bullet for Elliot, probably wearing a smile on his face. So all of these people help to shape Elliot and help keep his shattered bits together, I guess, and they all love him deeply. I think they're all able to kind of take a step outside of being in it and at different aspects of Elliot's life and realize that this isn't really what's best for Elliot. And I think he needs a support structure like that at this point in his life when he feels like nothing else is going right. David, 
We'll deep dive into David for a little bit. David McBain. All right. He is a bit of a wild card. He's a mystery for this book for a lot of it. But man, I love him so much. We get a good understanding of who he is by the end of this book, I think. It's not in-depth, but the base of his character is there. How David's connected to Elliot, like how they met. Elliot's housekeeper for Fraser House, Alice, is David's mother. So Elliot grew up at Fraser House. I'm not sure how, like, what the age difference is. I think there's probably about 20 years between Elliot and David. David's a little bit older than Kevin, but not too much. That's kind of how they know each other. David is a ex-Scots Greys, so kind of like a Navy SEAL here in the United States. That's what David is. And he was in Afghanistan. He fought over there witnessed some really crazy shit and ended up being awarded the Victoria Cross, which is a very high honor. It's kind of like the Medal of Honor here in the United States. He's an impressive individual, but he's also dealing with a lot of stuff. He's a ladies man. He likes to sleep around. He has, he he calls them his sister to kind of hide it from anyone else so that they don't judge him too much, but he has a sister in every city. And I love that we kind of see this brotherly relationship going on between Kevin and David because David very much treats Kevin as his younger brother. And I think that partially goes into our perception of Kevin, especially as we go on later into the series, because Elliot and David have a very protective streak over Kevin, and they think that he's in need of protection. So he's very sheltered from a lot of the tougher stuff that that happens. But at the same time, we do see that little brother quality in Kevin's jealousy over all of the women that David is <laughs> sleeping with. They're literally like fawning over him. But that's only one element of him. We get the deeper side of him as he continues. He's a very no-nonsense guy. I think that's a lot of the military in him, that he just doesn't have time for anybody's bullshit. And he doesn't have the tolerance for it. And you just need to get your shit together. And we need to move on from this. He's very much that kind of person. He's resourceful. He's an enforcer. He's a protector. One of the first lines that we get out of David is, life is a battlefield and those who forget get hurt. So that's kind of his perception of the world around him. He has been in a war zone for, I'm trying to think, he's probably like 30. So probably... I think he's recently, just recently gotten out of the military when we meet him in the last McLenna. So it's probably been like eight or nine years of war for him. And I think he's probably struggling to acclimate a little bit and being with Elliot and serving the purpose of bodyguard and just all around Superman, I guess. It probably gives him a purpose in life. And I think that he likes that. What I really love is David's relationship with Meredith because... That's when we really start to see the softer side of him and how David behaves towards Elliot when Elliot treats Meredith badly. Like there is a very frosty front that is put up. It's not like Kevin. Kevin just stopped talking to Elliot altogether. David has like a frosty professionalism around him, but it's not... It's not friendly at all. Again, we get this him standing in the gap. David has never put himself between Elliot and one of his women before, no matter how much Elliot may have overstepped. But now he's like, yeah, no, like 
no, no, we're not doing that. There's a quote from Meredith when she finally comes back to Kentucky. She thinks to herself, David gazed at her with his Superman stare. She assumed his eyes could see straight through her. A few weeks ago, she'd have stepped back out of his way. Now she knew that underneath his special agent facade, he was nothing more than a pussycat. And then he says, if I'm around, you carry nothing. (laughs) So he's just carrying her bag for her. He's such a sweetie. He's chivalrous. But what really shows how much he's attached to Meredith is after Doc tries to kill her, And they put her in the ambulance. And this is something that I did not pick up on until this read was Elliot perceiving David doing this. And he says, David looked through the window of the ambulance. His eyes watered. I'll take care of it. You take care of Meredith. This is a man that doesn't show emotion. He is cold as stone. He's very good at shutting off all of his emotions and getting the job done because he's a special forces operator and he's used to compartmentalizing. But when when it comes to the idea of losing Meredith, that is something that really scares him and gets his emotions going. And the second part to that is after Meredith wakes up, yes, David is obligated to take care of Elliot and make sure that he is taken care of. But what I noticed was that literally as soon as Elliot is taken care of and back at McClendon Mansion and getting some rest and getting food and whatever, both David and Kevin independently return to the hospital to be there for Meredith. They don't stay at home and rest. They return. And so David in particular understands that Meredith needs that added layer of security after what has happened to her and would feel safer with an armed presence there to protect her. Doesn't matter that Doc is dead, but she still needs that to feel safe, and David recognizes that. He's a very perceptive person. We see this happen earlier in the story when Meredith has been upstairs and... She wakes up and she finds Elliot gone, which isn't that big of a deal. And she comes downstairs to get breakfast. And then she's still in her PJs and still kind of sleepy presence. And she's like, I'm going to go, you know, see Elliot in his office. And David kind of steps in and says, he's with his board of directors and his lawyer. And (laughs) Meredith just kind of pauses and it's like, thanks for the heads up type thing. He says, I know you value privacy and Elliot's lifestyle doesn't exactly jive with that. Like, he notices the little things about everybody, but we especially notice it with Meredith and wants to make sure that she's taken care of and that she's getting what she needs. Kevin is kind of similar in that way. He's very attentive, very observant, very intelligent, very resourceful. You can tell he's the younger of the two. He hasn't been in the military, so he doesn't have that, like, structure and discipline that David has. And I feel like that's part of the reason that David is so hard on Kevin, because he thinks that Kevin can stand to be taken down a peg or two. Like, know your place type thing. But honestly, I feel like Kevin is the only one in the world that is is telling Elliot what he needs to be told. Kevin is Elliot's mini-me a bit, and Elliot is his idol in a lot of ways, and he really looks up to him. But I love that at the end of the day, he can also recognize when Elliot oversteps and not be afraid to tell him that. And that Kevin develops a relationship with Meredith, similar to the way that David does. Even when that the interim time is going on between the argument on New Year's Eve and when Meredith comes back, Meredith and Kevin are still 
conversing with each other and Kevin's doing his damnedest to get her to come back and like, look, he's not drinking anymore. He stopped taking his pain meds. Like he's really serious about being a better person. She's just like, no, Kevin, I'm not having it. I'm not putting up with that kind of thing. I had seen bits of that happening, but I gave him some leeway because I knew he was in a lot of pain or whatever, but I absolutely will not tolerate being treated like that, which I can't blame her. And Kevin doesn't either. While Kevin doesn't mind giving it to Elliot straight, The times when he acts without words say almost more than when he goes off on Elliot. So an example of that is after Elliot yells at Meredith, instead of you know, coming to her defense or whatever, he escorts her back out to the tent, makes sure that she's okay, and then continues to like dance with her and hang out with her for the rest of the night and then takes her to the airport the next morning. I love that. He's just so supportive of her and such a great, fantastic young man. He loves both of them and he wants them to be together. He sees how perfect they would be together, but he's not going to force the issue. He tries. Sometimes he tries to force the issue, but he also realizes that they need to come to that decision on their own. Angela says, Kevin is no slouch with the ladies too. All these men are. Yes, Every single one of them is a player in their own right. You see that mentioned later in the series is like, oh, in their younger years, they were like a force to be reckoned with. Because <laughs> I'm reading the Topaz brooch now and, and the main character in that one was talking about Kevin and David and Elliot. <laughs> one conversation that I absolutely adored was after it's discovered that Meredith's pregnant, after she brings Elliot into the loop, and he is discussing with her medical providers what the best course of treatment would be, and they're talking about they would recommend terminating the pregnancy. Again, here we go with Elliot taking the blame on himself and saying, if only I had used a condom. It's his default setting to blame himself because that gives him like some measure of peace. Like, oh, if I blame myself, then that means I was in control of this situation, even though he wasn't in control. And I love that very frankly, Kevin looks at him and says, I think there were two consenting adults in that bed. And Elliot says, it's ultimately my responsibility. And then Kevin replies, you'd like to think that, wouldn't you? but it's her body and her decision to make. That's what I like about Kevin is that he's not as icy and removed as David is. Like David is very professional, very involved in matters of protection and holding Elliot accountable for his health. Kevin is more of Elliot's emotional, not shrink, but like he's there for him emotionally and he's there for him to vent and he's there to like have discourse with. I think that may be why I'm drawn more to Kevin as a character than David at this point. The horse murder mystery. Galahad is the stallion at McClenna Farm. McClenna Farm makes their money off of breeding and racing horses. Galahad is a lead stallion. He's got a full book. He shuttles to the Southern Hemisphere, to Australia, to breed there once a year. It's a lot of income. So not only is he worth millions of dollars, just him, but... He also is a source of revenue in fathering foals for future racehorses. His well-being is a direct impact on the stability of the farm. When he dies, it is like, oh no, no, this is not good. Like it's, it's devastating, 
but they have insurance on him. You can have insurance on your horses. What is the kicker is that he has euthanasia drugs in his system whenever they do the autopsy. So because of a scandal that has happened, I think it happened like 20 years ago now or something like that, the Alidar scandal. So basically what happened was Calumet Farm came under new management. It was inherited by a younger generation. And the person that inherited it basically spent all the farm's money and put them in massive debt. Then conveniently, at some some point, this horse who had no history of kicking his stall, kicked his stall door, punched a hole through the stall, shattered his leg, had to have surgery, and then two days again, stood on it wrong, broke it again, and had to be put down. It was implied by attorneys that Calumet Farms euthanized Al-Yadar to capitalize on his insurance money and committed fraud. It was insinuated. It was never proved, but insinuated. And so insurance companies put into place protections for them that said that if horses have euthanasia drugs in their systems, we don't have to pay it out because you killed your own horse basically. So it's not like they just keeled over and died for no reason. The farm killed the horse. Therefore, you don't get to collect on the insurance money. It's like committing arson. If you burn down your own building and collect the insurance money, you go to jail for that. So it's it's a similar vibe with Galahad being killed. And that's why it's such a big deal for the farm because that insurance policy that they have on that horse would have covered the loss and they could have paid off the shareholders. And instead, the insurance company is no longer going to pay. So that stream of revenue has to come from somewhere else to be able to pay off all of these shareholders. And the only potential source of revenue that they have is a tract of land that is non-contiguous to the rest of the estate. It's 200 acres. It doesn't say how much it's worth, but they need to make up about $19 million over the loss of Galahad to pay off everybody. And selling this 200 acres to developers would go a long way towards paying some of that. But the thing about it is, is that the McClennas had debated doing this beforehand and decided against it because, quote unquote, they were convinced old Thomas McClennas' ghost would haunt them if they ever sold an inch. So Elliot feels a bit off about doing that because he knows that they were so against selling that tract of land in the first place. So they're left with this, okay, what are we going to do now? The only way that we can prove that we didn't put Galahad down is to find the person who did it. So they've got several suspects. Of course, because of Elliot's history with Wayne Gates, he immediately assumes that somebody associated with Wayne Gates is the culprit of this. Well, the only Gates brother that's left alive is the youngest one, but they can't find him. So a big chunk of this book is trying to find him and then he ends up dead. Like by the time they find him, he's had a bullet put in his head by a drug deal gone wrong. And that's super suspicious because they can't find his cell phone. And, you know, apparently he had an interest in horses. And there were there were a lot of things that kind of kept them interested in this train of thought, I guess. And so they kept looking, kept looking, kept looking. But it ended up being a dead end. And they thought after Gates showed up dead and the gun matched the ballistics report of a robbery from somebody that was strung out on drugs and robbed a mini 
Mart, they realized that, oh, yeah, the drug deal gone wrong actually was that way. The one that really intrigued me was Harrison Roberts, the CFO. I thought that I got led down that one. I was like, he kind of seems like an inadvertent lead, like you're dropping breadcrumbs or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, maybe it's him. Like I could see him being in some gambling debt or whatever and doing this to kind of maybe collect on the insurance money and recover some of the money that he's had to do creative accounting for to cover up those losses from, you know, his debts and things like that. I was very in on the Harrison Roberts motive. I was buying that. And then in comes Doc out of left field. And I'm just like, I did not see that coming. I'm curious. Did you guys know, like, had you guys figured it out that Doc was the one that was killing all of these horses? By the time they started talking about the joint compound and how Doc kind of got cut out of that, I was starting to be like, okay, yeah, it's probably Doc. But until then, I really did not see that coming at all. It just kind of makes it cringy, all of these interactions that we see between Elliot and Doc. And they're like joking and it seems like everything's okay. And then all of a sudden we start getting these like impressions about how Doc might be two-faced, like the interaction with Meredith over Stormy. Yeah, just things that he would say or the way that he would say them just really started to be weird to me. So basically what happened was that Elliot used to be the lead vet for the farm. And he got tired of being the lead vet. He was tired of being shoved into stall walls and being kicked and bitten and whatever. And he wanted out. So he decided to get more into the scientific side of things and developed a joint compound and took it to market. And he and Sean worked on that together. And Doc is over here giving suggestions. None of his suggestions panned out. So Elliot's like, well, none of his suggestions panned out. So he didn't really have anything to do with the development of the joint compound. So why would he get any money? And for Elliot, that's really black and white. Like he doesn't think there's anything wrong about that. They didn't end up using any of Doc's ideas. So why on earth would he get any money? Whereas Doc's like, no, I put time and energy into helping develop this and it's all trial and error anyway. So yeah, I should get a cut of the money. He had an appointment to talk to Sean about it, but then Sean died. So now that the compound is at market, Elliot's pocketing all of that money on his own because Sean has passed away. And Elliot, despite the fact that he's the CEO of the company, he's not legally bound. He's not attached to the farm. So all the money that Elliot has is Elliot's money. Despite the farm potentially going under because of all this Galahad stuff, that's not going to impact Elliot at all. But Doc knows how important McLenna Farm is to Elliot, so that the loss of McLenna Farm will impact him deeply. I don't think that Doc ever set out to like kill Meredith. I think that was purely because she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if he let her go, the cat would have been out of the bag. So I think that that 100% was the reason that he injected her with the pinto barbitol because he knew that the jig was up if she got away. We get kind of a supernatural element going in Cullen's ghost involvement. He just kind of pops up, doesn't he? We did get a little bit more uh, detail about him and he actually talks in this book. That's something that we didn't get in the Ruby Brooch and I found that interesting that he never spoke with Kit, but he spoke with Meredith and I wonder why that is. But 
this is where we start to get inclusion of previous stories into this book, which I really like. Stormy and Cullen's bond really impacts the outcome of the story and that Cullen is able to interact with Stormy and together they're able to save Meredith in a sense. And when Elliot ends up asking him about it in the hospital, he says, I did what I came to do, which was save Meredith. So it made me wonder if he had like taken on guardian status like his sister Kristen did for him in the ruby brooch. Catherine said that since he doesn't appear in the series past the last McClennan as a ghost, that's probably not quite guardian status. But if he appears again as a ghost, then yeah, she would say that that would probably be the case. So I think In the communications that Cullen has with Meredith, he really is trying to communicate with her that she can trust Elliot and that he's going to be strong for her because I know that's one of her biggest worries in life. But also his ghost helps us. Well, I think that we have pretty much put it together at this point, but helps Elliot make the connection that, oh shit, this woman is Kit's four times great granddaughter. And that is freaking nuts. You can see his mind being blown in that moment, which I love that moment. But also we're talking about all these like genealogical connections and lineages and family. That's all very important theme in this book. But what I found mind blowing was that until the very end, well, not the very end, but when Meredith is reading the founders thing that Gregory puts together, she doesn't realize with the genealogical reports that Elliot is actually a McClenna. Like this whole thing with the Fraser boy born on the wrong side of the sheets or whatever actually portends that Elliot does have a connection to McClenna Farm. And ultimately, that's why he ends up saving it from the auction block because he realizes that I'm not doing this because I owe Sean. That's what he was telling himself why he was involved in the farm for so long. But in reality, it's his legacy too, because he's a McClenna. So I didn't write it in my notes because it was too long, but I found our history and legacy portion of this extremely interesting because it gives us a good look at what happened with a lot of our characters, um, including John Barrett and how he came to work for Kit and Cullen in Napa on their winery. It also talks about how Kit was rumored to have unusual gifts and was able to predict the phenomenal growth of the wine industry. (laughs) Yes, she's a fortune teller, let me tell you. And it also talks about how Kit and Cullen had four children together and their only son, Thomas McClenna, carried on the family tradition of the winery, which is Meredith's line from Thomas. That was good. I loved that, that we, at the end, finally get some glimpse at what happened to Kit and Cullen because I was just desperate for it this entire time. So I mentioned the theme of family, which is a really deep part of the book, but another theme that I thought was kind of interesting was the idea of old fears morphing into new ones. All the history from Elliot and Meredith, it impacts their emotional state. But one thing, one key fear, and this isn't the only one, but it's the one that I'm going to use as an example, is when Meredith asks Elliot what he plans to do if they have to sell the farm. She asks him if he'll move back to Scotland. He says, I won't be separated from my child. I couldn't live with that. 
This is before they decide that they're going to give it another go and they're going to be good with each other and they're going to have a relationship. So they're trying to decide how they're going to co-parent with each other. And Elliot's like, I'm not going to co-parent from Scotland. Like, that's not going to work for me. I'm not moving to a different country and being away from my child. It's not going to work. But underneath, we see a child that was afraid of being separated from his mother has turned into a father afraid of being separated from his child. So we see that that link coming together. It's like an infinity symbol. It like crosses. <laughs> we see that a lot in this book. I love that so much that we see lots of character parallels between Elliot and Meredith, whether it's their position at mul- as executives at multi-million dollar companies, whether it's their concern over their own mental state or health or whatever. It's a lot. And so, like I said at the beginning, they're basically the same. They're the same person, just the male and female versions of each other, I think. Which is interesting because I asked Catherine about it and she said that she doesn't intentionally put those connections in, that they're just, they come out of the writing. She doesn't like outline those or anything. It's so cool, like that they are connected that deeply, like because I really feel like the only reason that they are perfect for each other is because they understand what the other person is going through. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up what I have on The Last McLenna. I'm going to read through some of your comments real quick before we part. Tiffany says, Louise is irritating sometimes because she wants to have Elliot's back. I still like her as a character. Yeah, I mean, I like her as a character. I just think she needs to take a chill pill. Connie says, interesting we don't see Jim much after this. Jim was an interesting character. Maybe too many other characters like him. We do see him, again, not a lot, just because I think the cast of characters gets so big from about book seven on. It just exponentially grows. But we do see him a little bit in um, the Emerald Brooch, I'm going to say. Yeah. The Emerald Brooch. Angela says, yeah, he makes Valbo sound like a pussycat. (laughs) Talking about Ted. Oh, that's funny. Um, Ted does seem super scary. Like, I would not want him to be my trainer. Barb said, I didn't like how David was playing the role of Elliot's doctor and is not an MD. Yeah, I think that's the problem. Elliot relies on David and Kevin for things that he shouldn't be relying on them for. And they just seem to be okay with it. I don't agree with that at all. I had a really hard time with that as well. And I think that's what Ted's pointing out. Like, look, why are you like giving him pain medication and all of that? I mean, I get, you know, David had medical training as a special forces officer and Kevin is a paramedic. So, I mean, they do know what they're doing as far as like triage treatment and stuff. But yeah, I think they did take it a step too far. Connie's asking if that was in the back of the book. No, um, it is at the beginning of chapter 70. Meredith is reading it as she's on her way back to Kentucky before the whole attempted murder situation. So yeah, it was cool. It gave us a little glimpse into their history, which was which was fun. Alrighty, guys, this has been extremely long. So I'm going to part ways with you here. I am on vacation for the next two weeks. I'm going to Scotland. I leave on Friday. I'm so excited. So um, I'll be there for the eight days after that. So no podcast next weekend or the weekend after. And then I'm planning on, as long as everything goes according to plan, being back with my analysis of 605 three weeks from this weekend. You have a fantastic couple of weeks. You guys stay safe out there. Adios.